You're listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. This is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. How are y'all doing? What's your magic number out there? <laughs> uh, hopefully, your magic number is feeling a little bit more achievable than ours this morning. I don't know, Smith, I was feeling good when we got it down to seven. Last night's loss, I am right back to existential panic. How is your magic number? Sounds a lot like a, like a late night um, call-in overnight DJ question. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Or How's a, your um, magic number out there, Cleveland? <laughs> Or perhaps a uh, fall television lineup uh, fill-in piece of programming hosted by, <laughs> like, um, Jason Sudeikis while the strike is happening. <laughs> oh, yeah. You can I tell hope, nobody think, wants to be there. You know what? I don't think Jason Sudeikis is a, is, a, is, a, is a picket breaker. You know who is? I don't think he's a scab. Who? Will Arnett. Oh, Will. Don't be I, like that. I realize uh, this is... Verging on slander, so let me let me just qualify this slightly. <laughs> I saw a poster yesterday <laughs> that there's a show called like Lego Builders or something, some like reality show that's hosted by unscripted. him, unscripted, unscripted, um, and and he's hosting it. And I think it existed prior to the strike, but I'm like, will. That's tricky. That's tricky. There's a, um, you know, the five late night hosts are all doing this podcast called Strike Force Five, and all mm-hmm. the benefits are going to their writing staff who are all out of work. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, you know, there, there, there are ways I think of doing creative content that don't feel quite so picket breaky. Yeah. Well, this is my thing about Will Arnett is he is one of the three hosts of the podcast Smartless, which mm-hmm. is actually one of like the five biggest podcasts on the planet um and in fact was sold to uh either amazon or i think it was to amazon for mil like hundreds of millions of dollars let me just check that math really quick but you're saying your boy doesn't need to work (laughs) In May 2021, the podcast signed with CAA. In June 2021, the podcast was acquired by Amazon.com for around $80 million. So That's why I have not uh, listened to it, because it breaks my ongoing Amazon, personal Amazon boycott, talking about <laughs> picket lines and crossing them. I don't know. It just makes it hard for me to believe that Will Arnett needs the paycheck that he's getting from this Lego show. And, like, I don't know, man, get out there on the picket line instead. Too true. Well, now that we've got that out of the way. (laughs) We have a big content announcement. Don't worry, Baltimore on Union members. We do not get paid. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. And, in fact... um, what we are what we are doing is like like verges on illegal so um you know just your <laughs> your friendly baltimoreans outlaw outlaw buddies here um so this is the thing on tuesday night of next week for game 1 of the 
pivotal two-game set against the Washington <laughs> Nationals. I say pivotal because, uh, you know, it, it could have division implications. Um, not because, uh, hopefully, hopefully not because the Nationals will put up a tremendous competitive fight. Um, so Tuesday night, 6.35 p.m., Still Alan, mathematically possible for that to be um, AL East clinch miss day, but it's not looking likely unless the Blue Jays really show up in Tampa. <laughs> Which, please, like I hate to say this, but let's go Blue Jays. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna do a live broadcast of that game, and what that means is that we are gonna call the game like we are Jeff Arnold and Brett Hollander. Like we are gonna we're gonna do a real radio play-by-play broadcast um now to be fair not as well as those people oh certainly not (laughs) certainly in the same manner in that in theory at least the entire um uh um visual of the game should spring into your mind fully formed based on our magical wordplay yes uh and alan said magical wordplay not me (laughs) (laughs) i there will be some wordplay we will be playful with words. Um, <laughs> so we're going to do this on Tuesday night. Uh, and and this is what we're going to do. In the past, it was possible to do this awesome thing where you could, via MLB TV, stream just ballpark Ambi. And uh, that was really cool because when we did our radio broadcasts in the past... We just had the ballpark ambi running in the background, and then we were doing commentary, and it sounded like a like a real sonically. It sounded like a real radio <laughs> broadcast, <laughs> not qualitatively. Um, but unfortunately, uh, MLB TV has disabled that feature, probably because there were too many amateur radio broadcasters out there uh, <laughs> doing what we were doing. Um, so, since we can't do that, what we're going to do this time is we're just going to live stream on Twitch. And what we're going to do is we're going to have the the TV broadcast going in the background. We will watch that and then we will uh, we'll turn the volume down and we will do live play by play as we watch the game. And we thought perhaps it might be fun for some of you to also turn the game on, watch along with us, turn your volume down and let us be your good company for the broadcast. So, if that sounds interesting to you, twitch.tv slash Sam Dingman is the channel. We'll put a, a link to that in the show notes, too. And we'll tweet it out uh, at our Twitter handle, Be Morons, a bunch before the broadcast, too. But um, we haven't done it in a long time, and we just thought it would be cool to try it again, especially, you know, this late in the season when... It, it, hopefully there won't be a, any like crazy surprises or new narratives uh, coming to light. And we can just kind of focus on reminiscing a little bit about the season that was, get excited about the playoffs, and hopefully broadcast an interesting game. I think that one of the um, – I've been practicing uh, by myself trying to do solo calls of the game. Jesus, this is hard, y'all. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to just kind of keep anything sustainable without losing focus. Fortunately, we'll have a two-man booth uh, on Tuesday, so um, my mental um, brain lapses, like what's happening right now, as I look, look for the word lapse, uh, <laughs> will not be quite so obvious. Um, but it, it is interesting to me, um, this balance and this is, you know, a lot of what your piece was about, Sam, in the in the 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 story you did on um, 
sports explains the world, but the balance between um, description mm-hmm. and telling people literally what is happening in the game so that you have a picture of what's happening and then the kind of um, time to fill in both color in terms of the players and what we know about them, but also color in terms of like your own emotional relationship to the game and what's happening. Um, It's such a different balance on radio than it is on TV. Yeah. Uh, You have to go so much more heavily towards what what we will be trying to do on Tuesday, an actual description with a little bit of, of um, um, context around the edges instead Mm -hmm. of what Mm -hmm. I think the TV folks have to do, which is kind of give you a reason to, um, listen to them that has more to do with like the larger narrative pictures and the, the ins and outs of stories that they know about the players and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I think I've been thinking a lot about this, obviously because of the piece and, and this question of what it means to be good company, which is what, uh, if you've listened to the piece, what, what John Miller and Andy Freed say is the mandate of the broadcaster pure and simple, to be good company. And it's very interesting to think about, like, the difference between what that means on TV versus radio, which is to say, like, on TV, you you definitely want to be good company, but it, it means more that, like, you want to be, like, the friend that the person on their couch is watching the game with. Right. You get Whereas, out of the way more, allowing the like the the visual narrative unfolding to carry more of the weight. <laughs> yes, but you do want to be a persistent presence, and like we, I, you know, I'm sure we've all had the experience of like dialing in to uh, on MLB TV to a Rays game, say after the Orioles game is over to see what's happening uh, in the Rays game, and you know. I don't want to implicate any particular broadcasters here, but I let's say they're playing a game on the West Coast. Won't name any teams. Um, And you dial in, you watch the TV broadcast and you pick the home broadcast of whatever West Coast team they're playing. And they're just not talking like Mm -hmm. you're just watching the game and like, you know, they'll say like, and that's a ball. And then they'll just let. 30 to 45 seconds go by with no sound. And it's weird to sit there and realize like, no, I want you to be talking to me right now. It's like weirdly lonely and isolating to be like, am I just sitting watching grown men play a game in another state right Right. now? Good, good commentary, especially good TV commentary makes the moment more important. Yes. Yes, um, it heightens the the value of the event, and mm-hmm. I think that's. I mean, you know, that's why a lot of people still bring the radio with them when they go to the ballpark, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. not only can you not really see what's going on all that well, but like, it, it it gives you sort of a sense of the gravitas of the of the of the moment more when you have somebody putting it in that context and talking about the stakes and all, all those things. Yeah, yeah. Um. And it's interesting to think about what that is on TV versus on radio, where you have to do all that same stuff that we were just describing, and you have to be the sole vector of illustration and uh, narration and description of what is unfolding. Um, 
One of my favorite little anecdotes that came up in the reporting process for Good Company is that apparently Andy Freed told me that he learned from John Miller, who in turn learned from Ernie Harwell, that the broadcaster's most important tool in the booth other than the microphone is an egg timer. And that what he will do, uh, John and Andy, and apparently Ernie did this too, is just they'll turn an egg timer over and every time the uh, sorry by egg timer i mean one of those little uh hourglasses hourglasses yeah that has you know it's like a minute and a half or something of uh sand running through and he would turn it over and every time it emptied he would give the score and the inning and the count and then he would turn it over and do that again because he knew that's a good cadence yeah you have to be able you have to give that update as much as possible because, you know, in a ba- in a TV world, you just turn it on and you see all that information in the upper left-hand corner. You can check it really quickly. But you can't do that on the radio. And if once if you turn on the broadcast midstream, yes, you know, you can kind of gather from the way things are being talked about what's happening. But you want to know as quickly as possible, like, what am I walking into here? Like, what's happening? What's the mm-hmm. context? What's the situation? So uh, we will be... Attempting to navigate all of these responsibilities on Tuesday night. I was playing a game. I, I was trying to call um, Houston game when I was sitting by myself um, trying to do it and um, trying to be as descriptive as possible. And every time that Kyle Tucker came up, uh, I was just <laughs> trying to describe him in ways that felt emotionally correct. So by the third time he was up, I was saying... Seven foot four, 400 pound slugger. He fills the entire side of the box, crowding the plate. It's impossible to get a ball by him. You know, so we'll, hopefully we'll do a little bit of um, um, actual description and then a little bit of emotional description, you know. Yes. Give people a sense I, of, what's, of what it feels like. Hyperbole is guaranteed uh, sure. to be a part sure. of the Baltimoreans live broadcast of Tuesday night. Without a doubt, the most consequential slider in human history. Yes. So, twitch.tv slash Sam Dingman, be there or be uh, probably somewhere else. Somewhere else. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so, Alan, you, you brought up Kyle Tucker. And, mm. uh, you know, that makes me think we should we should probably talk a little bit about the week that was. Um what would you say is uh, the thing you you liked most about your Baltimore Orioles this past week? What a roller coaster! Um, I think the uh, well, you know, I I'm very impressed with the resilience of this team. Um, mm-hmm. I'm very mm-hmm. impressed mm-hmm. with the sort of like uh, keep going against. <laughs> Uh, all of the trends of my own emotional um, investment. I felt like the season was over on Saturday. I feel like the season is over. I mean, in a negative way, Saturday morning. I felt mm-hmm. like the season was over um, uh, last night when the Orioles offense was incapable of hitting yet another sort of like soft uh, mm-hmm. pitching um, journeyman who was called up for three inning starts. Um and I, I am just like in the midst of all of that, this Orioles team is like dressing up as Mr. Splash and uh, like being goofy idiots in a way that continues to remind me that like, not that they don't care, but that like their, 
mental relation mental health relationship with the game that they are playing is significantly healthier than my own mental health relationship with the game that they are playing. Um, so my good for this yeah. week, if yeah. you will, or like the thing that I liked the most was seeing, oh, you guys are okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Even if you mm-hmm. don't end up mm-hmm. winning the American League East and have to go to a three game, uh, you know, wildcard series, like I still think they're going to be okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what that makes me think about is there have been a couple of interesting articles this week about what went wrong for the Mets and what uh, has gone wrong for the Padres. Obviously, two of the most expensive baseball teams of all time, rosters with more on-paper talent than anyone could possibly conceive of, who have seriously underperformed this year. And one of the things that both of those pieces talked about is, you know, what makes a clubhouse culture? And in the case of the Mets, one of the things that came up that I thought was pretty interesting is obviously there's a tremendous amount of talent on that roster, but it was also by and large older players with the Mm -hmm. exception of like Lindor and Alonzo. And that one of the things they thought really interfered and, and Buck, who, you know, we love Buck, of course, but he's he's an older school dude. Um and one of the things they were the article was speculating might have to do with the underperformance of that team is so many of those players had their were kind of stuck in their ways and have done things mm. their way for a long enough time uh, slash were part of the World Baseball Classic that they didn't have a lot of time in spring training to just like play games at the new speed of the game, which is oh, to say, that's interesting. you know all the pace of play changes taken together, it's a different... The game just happens at a different pace and that they were a little flat-footed, um, the Mets, when the season started. And... Hmm. Um, <laughs> the Orioles and are, all, the th- are already experienced that in AAA. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So much of our roster, like, actually, you know, learned how the game unfolded at critical stages of their development with the new pace of play restrictions. Um, so I thought that was that was sort of interesting uh, in terms of what you were talking about, hmm. that the game as it's currently played at the major league level for our guys is not so different than it was at AAA. And, you know, one from a pace of play standpoint, two from the standpoint that, like, a lot of them very recently were also all on the same team in AAA. You know? so yes. It's like, yes. Um, it's like, you know, everybody was best friends when they were seniors in high school and then they all ended up at the same college. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I, and I think that that like, you know, um, I, I have to think that that piece plays when you see someone like um, Kurtzstad come up and like immediately look so comfortable yeah. such that he is in the center of the celebration when they are clinching and then also like just hit and pinch hit singles off the bench yesterday. Like it ain't no thing. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I wish that we had made that matter more, but it was <laughs> yeah. really good to see that. Like he, that moment was not too big for him also. Yeah. And I think it has to help too, with stuff like, you know, at this point we have seen a couple of cycles, uh, whether it's Adley or Gunner or Grayson or, Westberg, um, 
Also, can I just say, like, there's an interesting thing to me that, to me, Adley is Adley. Gunner is Gunner. Grayson is Grayson. Jordan Westberg is Westberg, not Jordan. What's that about? <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> but and where do where is where is Kirstad? Is he uh, is he um, Heston? I think, I think he's Heston. I think he's uh, Heston in my brain. Not for me. I don't know him well enough yet. I don't know him. Yeah, well enough that's yet. fair. That's fair. But my instinct <laughs> is Heston. Um, but you know, it makes like, me think of cold Adley dead can- hands. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, but, like, Adley came up, struggled for weeks. Was, you know, there were people who were like, oh, this guy can't hack it up here. And then he figured it out. Gunner came up, um, was, you know, pretty solid for most of last year, but had two brutal months this year. Mm-hmm. Grayson came up, showed flashes of brilliance, ultimately needed to go back down, reset a little bit, has been dominant since he came back. Um, too many pitches yesterday, Grayson. Too many pitches. It's true. It's true. <laughs> but he didn't lose us that game, you know. No, um, sir. <laughs> and I think it has to it has to create a culture when Heston comes up, when Westberg comes up, where you feel like, don't worry. Like Yeah. Low pressure. We, we got you. This it, it's gonna be hard at first. And those of us who have figured it out will hold the space for you so that you don't have to be the dominant prospect that you were in AAA right off the bat. You can you can take the time that it needs. I I I imagine that has to be so calming for these mm-hmm. guys to come mm-hmm. up and know like these guys came up and took their lumps, other people carried the carried the ball for them while they were figuring it out. It's okay if I don't have it all figured out right away either. And we're seeing that with Heston, I think. You know, it's like, a season. It's a season long version of the like what happens to a team when they go through like a I don't know like four or five game hitting slump when everyone yeah. starts to press and everyone starts to swing for the fences and everyone starts to be the person who feels like I need to break us out of this. Like that leads mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. Or set bats <laughs> that leads to uh, yep. you know every every it's 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 bad for all kinds of outcomes, and the the um the the version of that the writ large is exactly what you're describing, sort of like a comfortableness with um giving people the time they need to to get where they need to go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then just to make the Padres comparison quickly in terms of what you were describing, there's, you know, this is just one piece of reporting about the Padres. Who knows what the real story is? But it seems like a lot of the issue there is that there is dramatic tension between A.J. Preller, the general manager, and Bob Melvin, the manager. Um hmm. And that there's a real difference of opinion and philosophy and lack of trust on either side. And obviously, the Orioles' executive suite is far from perfect. (laughs) But it does genuinely seem like Elias and Hyde are on the same page. And mm-hmm. that there, there does not seem to be any tension or friction there. Much as, you know, we often say, let Mike cook. Um, it seems like Elias is very comfortable letting Hyde cook. 
Um, or maybe it's that Hyde is very comfortable taking directives from Elias. We obviously don't know the intricacies of that, but it does not seem like there's friction there. Um, yeah. And I'm sure that the that trickles down to the players where they feel like I don't have to have in my head a question about who's driving and what direction they're steering in. We can just mm. play. Um, and I think that stuff really matters. Um, so I'm feeling grateful for that this week. What would you say, um, there are plenty to choose from, what would you say was your, your negative outcome or the thing that you were least happy about with the Orioles this, this week? The bullpen. <laughs> I'm yes, sir. so upset. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I think, I don't want to be alarmist, but I think that... Well. <laughs> a little alarmism. A little alarmism is perhaps merited in this particular instance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously the bullpen has been a huge strength for us all season long, but something that we have talked about on the show before is how much the dominance of Bautista and Cano was masking covering other... for a lot of sins. <laughs> yeah, because the thing that was easy to take for granted, I think, when Bautista was healthy, was you knew, if you were a pitcher in that bullpen, you know, the ninth is Bautista's. The eighth is Cano's. This is, you know, assuming a a somewhat typical game where the Orioles are ahead going into the eighth and ninth innings. Mm -hmm. But you, Mm -hmm. you could just kind of count on that. So if you're a pitcher, you know that I might be called upon anywhere between the fifth and the eighth um, to play that role. But those are the types of situations that I am going to be summoned for. And what the loss of Bautista does is it totally scrambles that math because now nobody's role is fixed. And you can see the havoc that that is wreaking um, on these guys' psyches because sometimes they, they really show up. But other times, they're really a mess, whether it's because they're being used more or being used in different places, and it is costing us games. Yeah. Yeah, and I think also you can't underestimate this last week the fact that we're on game 13 of 17 consecutive games about an off day and our... um, starting pitching has not been getting not been generating enough innings such that um, eating enough innings such that we've been going to the bullpen way earlier than anybody was hoping for. Yep. Um, So all that you said, plus the overexposure of just like too much being asked of these guys, um, Back to back to back to back days. I mean, I think like, yeah. And all you have long... to do is look at like Perez's outing yesterday to be like, yeah, that's not <laughs> uh, three three straight batters reaching. Like that's gonna that's gonna lose you the game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, I'm not I'm not gonna get super mad at Perez. I, you know, before yesterday, I think he'd had 23 consecutive scoreless outing or 23 consecutive outings where he hadn't allowed an earned run. And yeah, it's pretty that's, good. that's about as much as you can ask for from a guy. That strikeout of Jordan Alvarez on three fastballs 
to end yeah. the the second game of the Houston series. Like that was just awesome. Um, and so like, yeah, the dude is tired. Um, yeah, he's been, exactly. he's, he's being asked to do way, way, way too much. Um, but the fact is it's a long way to go to Monday, which is our next off day. Um, yeah. and if we don't have a couple more games like Grayson's start against the Rays last Saturday, um, where does this get better? Where does it get better? Because one of the things that, uh, I think it was Connor um, who does the Lockdown Orioles podcast on Twitter was pointing out is all of our bullpen reinforcements who who we would want, you know, like your Cole Irvins, um, your uh, who, who else was it that was just sent down that was sort of confusing? Your, your Brian Baker's like, mm-hmm. um, although it's debatable whether we want Brian Baker back. Um <laughs> But all those guys, they have to stay down for a minimum of 15 days before they come back. So our options for call-ups right now, like, I think the main one is Tyler Wells, and he's not pitching well. So Is he even pitching right now? I thought we shut him down. He pitched two days ago, and he got blown up. Mm, um, shit. And so, like, we probably have to stick, unless Ryan McKenna is going to throw some some relief innings, we've really got to stick with the guys that we have slash Mm. we need some deep starts and those have been hard to come by lately or you know i mean there's because i guess the other question is you know how concerning is this when it comes to the playoffs because obviously in the playoffs it's a slightly different calculus right because in the playoffs jack flaherty it, Jack Flaherty's in the bullpen now, but Jack Flaherty can be a bullpen guy in the playoffs. Arguably, Kyle Gibson is a bullpen guy in the playoffs. Um, these things, the, the calculus changes a little bit when you can you can have starters coming out of the bullpen. So that's why I say I don't want to be too alarmist about it, but it is concerning. Yeah, but we got to get to Monday because the difference between going straight to the ALDS or being matched up against the Blue Jays in a three-game series is... Yeah. Immediately. A three-game series immediately without time to sort of, like, rest yeah. and get everybody back is is really, really terrifying. So, Sam, can I ask you, sort of on a temperature, bullpen temperature level, um, have you allowed yourself to hope that we're going to see... Uh, the banana splitter coming out in the ninth again this season. Where are you on on the like your emotional tenor there? I'm really glad you asked this question because we we haven't talked about this yet, and it feels like there has not been a lot of discussion about this, and we need to talk about this. <laughs> no one's looking directly at it. <laughs> Everyone's just like, yeah. maybe if I ignore it, this will happen. I. I obvious. I trust this front office. I trust this medical staff. Obviously, they know what they're doing. I'm really scared about the idea that we would allow Felix Bautista, who throws extremely hard and has a very serious injury in his pitching arm. Why would we allow him to throw in game situations, high leverage game situations at velocity again this season and risk catastrophic damage to his arm. We need him to be a cornerstone of this bullpen 
for years to come, hopefully, ideally. But but isn't but isn't the theory that like he's gonna have to get the off season surgery anyway? And that the difference between the surgery now and the surgery with, I mean, who knows? This is just like the, the supposition that I think I've been reading is that like, he can't actually make it worse. (laughs) Like, I mean, if that's true, then okay. I guess I just have a hard time believing that's true because to me, if the tear is not severe enough to prevent him from throwing right now, to me, that's an argument for doing the surgery more quickly, speeding up the recovery timeline so that he Mm. could come back and pitch at full strength earlier, hopefully next year. I I Mm. would much rather look at it that way and just know that the back end of the bullpen is not something we have to worry about come, you know, say July or August of next year, whatever the recovery timeline would be. I would much rather make that choice than it just seems like we're really playing Russian roulette with his future by countenancing the idea that he could pitch at something approaching full strength and uh, with this injury. Like, I, and it may be I, that I just don't know enough about it, but it's real I will scary say to me. The, if, if we do see him again, um, Every single pitch he throws is going to be the most stressful thing that's ever happened in my life. Yes, yes. Like, we're going to be just living and dying with each pitch, not just the outcome, but also, yeah, every every piece of that is going to be absolute hell. Absolutely, and like you so, know. just for my own emotional <laughs> investment levels, can we not do that, please, Orioles? Because I don't, I don't think I can handle. Yeah. The like. Uh, there's there's this you know um, the Kevin Durant moment when like Durant comes all the way back in time to make it into the finals and plays like one and a half amazing games and is fantastic and then blows out his knee and is never you know yeah. not heard from again for eighteen months. Exactly, exactly. I don't want that for Felix. Just on a personal level, like his journey to this point has been so remarkable, and you know, yeah, man, from... get that man his bag. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and. You know, I just you really hope that he is being given a say in all of this. Um, I just I I actually hope he's not being given too much a say in it, because it seems to me like he is a classic from everything I read. Like he is a classic, like I'm an invincible athlete, dude. And I hope I hope he's been given um, a say, but with. A healthy dose of yeah. uh, advice from people who have his his medical best interest at heart. Yes, because I don't. I don't actually want Felix Bautista being the only person making this decision because I know exactly what he will decide. Yes, yes. I guess the other thing is like uh, like those are the those are the top line concerns. But if you want to look at it just purely on a baseball level, I'm not convinced. Like. Felix Bautista is dominant because he throws, you know, from 99 to 102 miles an hour with movement on the fastball and then with the splitter. If he comes back and the fastball is 95, 97, I don't even know if he'll be as effective as he is under normal circumstances. And then actually, what are we doing? You know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Mm-hmm. But again, I, you know, I, the the I was you know not ten minutes ago I was praising the organizational uh, coherence sort of coherence of the Orioles. So I guess we have to put our faith in that. But it just feels like we're really playing with playing with fire on this. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope I hope that um, when we I hope, yeah, I, I hope that we, people can give um, Bautista and also the fans um, some semblance of of um, information <laughs> about all of this before they just sort of roll them back out there. Because I, uh, I think just yeah, like I said, emotionally speaking, the 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 rigmarole of going through that process, um, uh, watching him pitch without knowing kind of what the stakes are and knowing whether like every pitch could be, uh, you know, him pulling up lame and, and then not seeing him again for 18 months. I just wouldn't. Yeah. I would not enjoy that. Yeah. <laughs> let me, let me ask you one quick scenario, hypothetical scenario question that just popped into my mind. Let's say things go just gloriously well for us over the next uh, three or four days and we clinch the division and mm-hmm. there's, you know, a little less than a week to play. It, it's probably not enough time to do an experiment like this, but it occurred to me that you could with a few, with a handful of games left and the division clinched anoint one member of the bullpen as the new closer. Instead of doing this closer by committee thing that it seems to be creating some some psychological chaos in our bullpen, what if you just said, "All right, let's make it's this Cano. guy the dude and and see see what happens." It's um, Cano. You go Cano. I do. That's the, that's the hypothetical. Is who would you pick? I I would. Oh yeah. Oh sorry. I was jumping ahead. Um, yeah, I think I would go Cano. Um, mm-hmm. I think I would go Cano and I would go uh, sort of like trying to reestablish that dominant space that you were describing before of like everyone knows their role and everyone has a sense of what their position is in it. Um, I would go based on very little evidence, um, Danny in the eight hole. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And uh, Flaherty is actually my first guy uh, to eat innings after mm-hmm. a five-inning start. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, um, how now? Would you... I, what's What's interesting about Flaherty is I have you know a lot of our current folks in the bullpen are hitting like uh, you know five outings in six days or something crazy like that. And I think that the the positives of having somebody like Flaherty who can is stretched and can go multiple innings is that I think you need to give him more recovery time. So he's like a, you know, you can only use him (laughs) fairly rarely. I don't think you can throw him every day. I think you need to give him like three days off in between outings. So he's a, uh, a, a valuable commodity, but one that we have to use fairly sparingly. Yeah, especially because we still there's still a lot of uncertainty about what happened with that one start of his that was pushed back because his body, quote, didn't bounce back. Mm. Um, I think, mm. we, you know, we still don't really know what was going on there. Don't love uh, to hear that. Don't love to hear that. Um, 
I am a little curious about what would happen if we said to D.L. Hall, all right, you're the guy. You're the man now, dog. Um, I know that based on his recent performance, nobody would be excited about that. But if he had... I'd be excited about that. You know, it like if he had a week where it was like the division's already clinched, like let's just see what you can do in these scenarios. And obviously, you know, it, it would only be like five, six games, obviously, whatever it is. But like he throws really hard. His delivery is very really hard. deceptive. I have long-term questions about whether he's ever going to be the starter that we wanted him to be. But do you? In a world where... Why is that? I just feel like the the fastball is electric. The breaking ball, come, working off the slider, I guess it is working off of the fastball is really exciting. Um, but it, it, I don't. I, feel, I just feel like he doesn't have a third pitch. Mm, doesn't doesn't um, have enough for the third time through the rotation. Yeah. that you'd want from a frontline starter. But electric fastball, wipeout breaking ball. And very deceptive delivery, a closer makes. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially a lefty, um, which makes matchups harder for, for the opposing team. So um, maybe maybe it's not this year, but maybe that's more of a looking ahead to next year thing. If we are not going to have Bautista for all of next year, I wonder if D.L. Hall could be the new Zach Britton. Yeah. Yeah. that's That would be very exciting. Um so Sam, I I think that one we we mentioned um, some of uh, the reasons that we think that the Mets and the Padres both mm-hmm. kind of underperformed this season, and maybe one of the reasons why the Orioles are overperforming. Mm-hmm. But another sort of uh, loosey goosey Baltimore on sort of analysis question for me in that space that we didn't talk about is this question of expectations. Ah, yes. Um, And I think that that is actually one of the maybe multiple albatrosses around the neck of the Padres. One of the multiple albatrosses around the neck of the Mets is that they really had, they came in with a bunch of expectations. So as soon as, instead of what happened with the Orioles, which is like, uh, you know, McKenna drops that fly ball in the second game of this, of the, um, uh, of the season and everyone's like oh well that's just the Orioles that we expected like yeah, they, yeah. They, they never had anything going for them so I'm not too worried about it if if the Orioles had been anointed as the favorites in the American League East I think that that's a bigger deal mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. at least outside of Baltimore <laughs> uh yeah. and and sort of like any any early struggles are are played up so mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about like what you think, why are we all, uh, what, what is the, how about this? What is the value of all of the prognostication and pregame, uh, preseason, um, estimates and, and, and projections and all that stuff? What, what are they good for? And why do we allow them to get us so upset when they don't go our team's way? And, and I would just put out as like an early trial balloon here that the best thing that can happen to a baseball team in 2023 is to have fan graphs estimate that they will win 77 games instead mm-hmm. of 97 games. Like yeah. that is so good for so many reasons. 
um, mm-hmm. be it bulletin board material, be it fan expectation, be it sort of like the general run of show. Don't we always want to be underestimated in the Pythagorean nonsense? Yeah, I would think so, because, you know, like you talked about with Felix Bautista, like if you're a professional, not just athlete, a professional at anything, it's really important to you to be seen as like it, it it's fuel it's fuel for your it's fuel for the fire you know what i mean it makes you it nobody likes to feel underestimated and when you feel like you're underestimated at least in something like sports where competitiveness is part of your nature it makes you want to prove people wrong and i think that almost 100% of the time is a good thing on a baseball team i feel keep like keep doing it keep doing it fan graphs bring it yeah. I mean, the thing I think to answer your first question, I think we like prognostication as fans. I think there's there's a reason fans like prognostication and I think there's a reason journalists like to prognosticate. Mm-hmm. I think the reason that fans like prognostication is because no matter because it, it last week we talked about the role of uncertainty in following a team like this and the 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 crushing implication of the failure that seems to be hanging in the air all the time and the profound psychological implications <laughs> of mm-hmm feeling like you're always on the brink of losing and and the confirmation bias that we have that we are all secretly losers and it's only a matter of time before we are revealed as fakes um right and a prognostication is a balm to that feeling whether Hmm. the prognostication is you know what you guys are going to win 94 games and be competitive it it gives you a sense going into the season of like, well, I at, secretly feel at all times like these guys are bums and are going to screw it up. But the experts don't. So I'll put my faith in them. Or if the prognosticators say, you know what, this is a 77 win team. You go into the season being like, okay, I don't need to have my expectations overinflated. I don't need right. it, I don't need to feel blindsided or horrified when they don't perform well because nobody expects them to perform well. So I think that that is why we as fans like it. I think, you know, I, I think that's the deeper reason people like it. You could also say like, well, <laughs> there's probably some fans who are like, I enjoy gambling on sports and it makes it easier to gamble on sports. Whatever. <laughs> True. And I think there's also like a certain um, uh, type of fan who just really enjoys going back and finding all of the mean tweets that people said about the Orioles in in um, April and just like rolling around in them like a like a pig in shit. Yeah. Yeah. When it comes to why journalists like it. Hmm. It's such a losing proposition for them. It's such a losing proposition. 
I think I, I am really going to reach for something here, and please feel free to tell me to calm down. But <laughs> being a baseball journalist is not what it used to be. It hmm. used to be that you were at the park. You were, Like, this is why we all love reading Rock Kabatko, right? Because he's at the park every day. He's in the clubhouse. He's talking to the players. He mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. a real, genuine feel for what's actually happening on the ground on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Most sports journalists now aren't doing that. You know, they're like second screening, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth screening all the games at the same time. They're reading Twitter and texting each other and the watching what's happening on ESPN or whatever and tasked with coming up with a hot take uh, that gets clicks. Uh, they're not really there for it. Mm-hmm. And so if you can't do real in-depth or authentic on-the-ground report, shoe leather reporting, cleat leather reporting, you need to have something else that gets people talking and reacting. And so as the emphasis on beat reporting has waned, it makes sense to me that the celebration of math reporting, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. algor- uh, mm-hmm. um, regression model uh, sabermetric reporting has risen because it is, a, it is a way of having a big take without having to do the kind of traditional reporting that allows you to have a big take um, in the old-fashioned sense. I don't mean to say that, like, people who do prognosticative reporting aren't doing hard work. Like, I'm not saying they're not putting in time uh, and committing, you know, resources in terms of research and careful writing to write those pieces, but it's a different kind of piece. Um, And so... Well, I I actually would pick up on that and say, um, it's actually, to me, when I look at it from the prognosticator side, from the predictor side, it's actually a different kind of game. Mm. Um. I think that they are playing their own version of a game mm-hmm. and it is built on the, um, the, the, the bedrock of baseball, mm-hmm. but baseball is fairly irrelevant in the playing of this game. Just in the same way that trading um, oil or wheat futures <laughs> is built on the underlying commodity, but has nothing to do with the commodity itself. Yes, yes. And I actually think that there's an entire class of people who get their um, their their competitive juices flowing, their um, stat nerd competitive... I mean, it's basically D&D, but it's like, <laughs> how well can I build an algorithm that actually predicts this real-world real thing? Mm-hmm. And my mm-hmm. fear is that it is the um, Chicago School of Economics yeah. uh, taking over yet another thing that I hold dear. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In the sense that the sort of like, the, the, 
if you if you have ever studied economics, uh, you know that the entire point of economics is to create a model that does a better job of pre predicting what the economy is going to do than the current model. I am, of course, being flippant and um, underselling a complicated um, science, but I'm that's comfortable it. with that. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. That's what they're trying to do. They're all trying to one up each other in like, can my model do a better job of predicting the the reality than your model? And the entire thing about economics and the way the reason why economics is destroying our country instead of building it is because there is no um, there is no space for anything that doesn't fit into the model. Mm -hmm. So if you have something like uh, I was listening to this fascinating podcast, plain English the other day, uh, I think Derek Thompson is a fantastic, he was doing this whole thing about um, happiness and the American um, survey about happiness. And one of the things that he was saying was that the number one correlator between Americans reporting being happy over the last 70 years, the number one thing that correlates with happiness is are you currently married? Which is fascinating to me. Like wow. it throws so many things on their head. But like then you then a bunch of economists get their hands on that number and they try to do like a bunch of things like is happiness or is sorry, is marriage the source of happiness? Or like when I hear that statistic, I think correlation does not equal causation and actually what's happening is that there are a bunch of happy people out there who are already going to be happy and they're going to spend their time happy and you know what it's actually really nice to be around happy people so it's easier to stay married to someone who is kind of a happy person and is going through life happily whereas if you're like generally kind of unhappy and like then mm -hmm. probably you're going to have the path toward divorce. Like, obviously, there are so many different things that yeah. I am like yeah. painting pictures of here that I'm not we don't have time to open up and walk through those doors but it, to me, it seems like the baseball statistician who has taken the Moneyball thing to the point where they see their value as I am going to tell you exactly how this entire season plays out based on um, my more brilliant than anybody else statistical analysis and progressions and whatever is walling themselves off to the one thing that I like about baseball. <laughs> and I think the reason why like I get mad at that or like I don't like the prognostication is if it's right, then the person gets to pat themselves back on the back as a genius, mm -hmm. but they've still missed the point. They've mm -hmm. just gotten lucky. They haven't accounted for the fact that like what matters the most is that Gunner and Adley are friends and like there's like this vibe thing happening and for whatever reason, Ryan O'Hearn has dusted off his career. And like, mm -hmm. you can't quantify those things. Yeah. And if you can, you're breaking it. <laughs> yes. You're yes. ruining it for me. Yes. Yes. Well, I, I think all of that is so sharp. I'm sorry for all and of this, the, 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 the stray bullets that um, my economist friends just caught in that rant. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I'm, I'm excited that they're listening. Um, <laughs> The the thing that makes me think that makes me think of like sixty five different things. But one is wh just what you just said about whether you can quantify it or not. There was a piece in Fangraphs this week about like we know you are mad at us Orioles fans. 
here is how we arrived at our projection and why we still think our projection model is sound. Mm -hmm. So first, kudos to Fangraphs for writing that piece. But (laughs) I read the piece and one of the things that it says is, in so many words, there is frankly no accounting for the ability to win close games. That's not true. <laughs> that, that isn't true. The, like, that does not simply boil down to, like, the whims of chance and fate. There's a reason that some teams consistently win close games and other teams don't. And that reason is that Ryan O'Hearn said in print, we love each other. Everyone in this clubhouse wants at a cellular level for the guy behind him to have a good game. And we are all so invested and bought into that and refuse to compromise about it. That's why the Orioles win close games. And you, it's true. You can't put that in a projection model. But that doesn't mean it is not a real phenomenon that exists on one baseball team and not on another one. Mm -hmm. Like, it is a real thing. And just because your model can't quantify it, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And and, and I think that sort of like the, well, I I, I mean, I guess it's at some point, I guess I think, you know, okay, stat nerds, you can, you know, have your fun. Like, I I don't actually... (laughs) You know, it's, it's, it's fine with me. I don't actually mind if people are playing whatever game you are playing, like whatever game you would like to play with your time. That's fine. I just don't think it has all that much to do with better understanding baseball. <laughs> like, yeah, the, the theory is that these sort of statistical models are, 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 are opening up the truth, underlying truth of how the economy works how the, uh, the, the game that we love is played. Like those sorts of things are like opening up in front of us. And I would say that they are at best, at very best, doing a better and better and better job of telling us the story that just happened. Yeah, yeah. They're not opening anything up in front of us. And all of this, right? All of this, whether we're talking about baseball or economic projection, it's all about the illusion of control. Yeah. It's, it's all about this insane idea that has been disproved time and time again over centuries that humans are convinced that there is a way to gain control <laughs> over, over anything. Yeah. The behavior yeah. of our fellow humans. And there just isn't. It doesn't yeah. exist. Um, yeah. And, and, it, that's and why it's the never going like, exist. The number one thing that, you know, people, <laughs> it's the. People who actually play the game of baseball continue to be, even in this age of of um, uh, uh, like statistical dominance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They continue to be incredibly superstitious loons. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, because because they know it's like. Jesus, take the wheel. Like, yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is all, it's all up to something bigger than us. Totally. You know, the, the other thing that I think it's important to think about here is, and that what, what, what you were saying made me consider, is 
the other important question when one is looking at the prognostication phenomenon is like, who are the people who do those projections trying to talk to? Yeah. And And my theory is more and more just each other and just in a competitive way. Absolutely. Because one of the things that Andy Freed, the Tampa Bay Rays radio guy who I talked to for good company told me is he said, I don't invoke advanced metrics at all during my broadcasts because Mm. the person who is sitting there listening to the game, one, it's very hard to hold hypothetical numbers in your head when you're trying to picture a baseball game in your mind. Mm. And the idea of saying like, well, the launch angle on that would have suggested a different outcome. Like that's not that's just not compelling commentary, you know what I mean? Um, and it it, it and it, and also why don't you just say, Kirchstad stung the hell out of that ball, but he was unlucky and hit it right to the first baseman. <laughs> right, which just think about what the two phrases we just said. The one you said, we can envision that exact sequence of events in our mind. We can see Heston's stance. We can see the the ball screeching off the bat. We can see the first baseman like snagging it. Uh, in the webbing of the glove, we we see a story unfold uh, versus like, what is a launch angle again? And like all this kind of stuff. Um, But the other thing that he said about advanced metrics in terms of good company is he's like, those are not the kind of things. He's like, I am a, I am a, an avatar for the person that either Mm. is sitting next to you on the couch or on the boat listening to the game or that you wish was (laughs) that you wish was and you wouldn't turn to your friend and say like can you believe the spin rate on that slider (laughs) you wouldn't do that it's nobody does that (laughs) so he's like i'm talking that we're just having a different kind of conversation yeah and I think the people who do the kind of predictive work that we're dis- discussing, they're not trying to talk to us as like comrades in existential desperation. <laughs> right. They <laughs> are is... to the baseball fan as the, um, to me, they are to the baseball fan as the person who sells wheat futures is to the farmer. There you go. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Well, Smith, um, in customarily wide-ranging fashion, <laughs> I think we have answered just about all of the questions that were floating around in the ether this morning, except for one. Uh-oh. Uh, there is one lingering question that, that I would like to put to you. And that question is this. What would you call former Orioles outfielder Henry Urudia when he is providing the musical accompaniment to a late night talk show Hosted by an alleged drunkard who does not treat his employees well. 
would that be Henry Yerutsrudia? You got it. <laughs> you got it. Also, everybody, please read the piece about what it's like to work for Jimmy Fallon. Yikes. <laughs> uh, Twitch.tv slash Sam Dingman. We will be live in your ears if you'd like to come listen along with us on Tuesday, probably around 6.15, first pitch at 6.30. And in the meantime, uh, enjoy the absurdly large number of games we still have left in this series against Cleveland. What's with all these uh, late-season four-game sets? I'm not into yeah. it. Yeah, couldn't give us another off day in September, you clowns, huh? All right, friends. We'll talk to you on Tuesday. Baltimoreans. Baltimoreans.